and welcome to season three, episode three of Unscripted Equity Curiosity. My name is Ami Joseph, your host for uh, today, along with Andrew Friedman and Felix Wong. We are uh, sector heads at Hedgeye. This is a Hedgeye podcast in which we discuss uh, different themes or challenges or opportunities or macro backdrops to equities as we work through um, our thoughts on stocks and our various sectors. I follow the technology sector uh, with a focus on uh, software mainly in the last few years. Andrew Friedman is on and follows the communications so- so- uh, sector, which includes um, internet and media companies and communication services companies. And Felix Wang is on who focuses on, uh, who is a sector head for Hedgeye China and focuses on all of uh, Chinese equities. Um, and uh, this podcast is not meant to uh, come up with specific longs and shorts. It's really more uh, timely and topical background. And today, uh, we actually are hosting a guest for you uh, today. His name is Alan Hellowell. And I'll give you a brief intro on Alan. I know Alan a really long time. Um, and I'll give you I'll give you the backdrop of, of kind of like, you know, the why and, 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 and where Alan's background is. Alan, once upon a time, went to Princeton University, my alma mater's number one enemy. And he took him a little while, but he learned the error of his ways and realized how uneducated he was after Princeton undergraduate. And he went and got two master's degrees at Stanford because he realized how much time he wasted at Princeton. He had to get two master's degrees, one in business and one in East Asian studies. And actually, those two things, a combination of business and East Asian uh, concentration has really shaped uh, much of his work experience. Along before all of that, he worked at uh, Netscape. So those people who study history know what that company is, um, and uh, really like the first internet bubble stock ever. And then worked at Lucent, um, which was the the poster child. It was like Lehman Brothers before Lehman, but it was it was the poster child for the communications equipment. Uh, bubble uh, back in in the so he has experience riding bubbles and when all that was over he went to smartly to equity research and was at equity research at Lehman Brothers uh, in it was co-head of research for Asian TMT research and then from there went to uh, Deutsche Bank where he was he was there for a very long time at Deutsche Bank uh, running Asia TMT research um, and and also spent time after uh, equity research uh, Alan was the group chief strategy office for C, which is a company that Felix covers. And then since then has spent time in uh, venture capital in Indonesia, uh, based out of Singapore uh, and co- connected to the entire region, which is an area that uh, I don't have any visibility on these days. I used to, because I used to travel all the time when I was at Putnam, I travel all the time to Taiwan and to China and Japan and Singapore and Korea, and I was in touch with what was going on in that world. And now I'm so far away from it. I'm so excited to have Alan here today to give us a little bit of insight about that part of the world from either from a macro perspective, uh, we could talk, uh, we'll talk maybe a little bit about the countries themselves and, and where there are strengths and weaknesses and opportunities, but also about the disruptive technology opportunity there and where is that industry and where's the level of maturity there? So Alan, welcome and thank you so much for uh, joining us today. And I guess maybe like just to throw a big softball question at you is, is sort of um, 
I guess maybe reach back to your uh, your equity research hat and you're thinking about the Southeast Asia region in terms of uh, TMT trends. Like what are the big things that stand out? Is it, you know, oh my gosh, a micro LED? Is it hardware-based investment? Is it battery-based investment? Is it electric vehicle? Is it software? Is it cloud? Uh, is it internet? Is it social media? What is, what is, what is it e-commerce? What are the... What are the big things um, that are sort of coming up from the ground now that you see and that you have focused on in recent years? And and thanks again for being on the podcast. Sure. Yeah. So uh, thank you for having me on. Uh, just to get to your question, uh, I would say that there are two meta trends and they're somewhat staggered uh, and that those being e-commerce and fintech. And when I, when I say they're staggered, uh, I think e-commerce has gained earlier traction, has had more meaningful growth, and is more readily evident the benefits of e-commerce, particularly in developing Asia, than has fintech. So fintech, that wave is starting to swell in a big way. Uh, but I think you can write back almost every significant change on the technology side to those two verticals. And, uh, you know, they've been absolutely profound. And with the, as goes with the entirety of the rest of the world, uh, COVID has done nothing but add fuel to both fires. And so it's, it's been, th those have been two areas which have just uh, in the really, I guess, seven years that I have shifted my career from Northern Asia and greater China to South Asia. Those are the two areas that we've seen the most meaningful change, uh, you know, for the uh, um, higher end consumer, uh, but much more impactfully that long tail to the left of the unbanked and the underserved in markets ranging from Indonesia to the Philippines to Vietnam to really any of the other markets, maybe outside of, of Singapore, which has been developed world status for decades. Um, so Alan, I, it's an amazing start. I, I want to think about both of those areas, but, but maybe first we can pick up on the fintech side because it's sort of where you ended. And, and um, you know, like to think about the United States, you know, for as a comp, you know, we have such a big uh, banking and financial infrastructure here that was pre-fintech. And so you see inroads here in fintech, but it's usually either like, you know, it's, it's still peripheral um, to, to most degree, right? Uh, it's, it's, it's happening in payments. It's not happening in banking as much, uh, at least for now. But can you compare, can you tell us like this generation that's just going to skip this whole area, Indonesia, Philippines, Vietnam, that's basically going to skip financial infrastructure the way the United States has it entirely and just, just jump right through to fintech. What are the, can you con contrast a little bit with what are the services that are getting used and becoming big? And what are the, I don't know if you want to pick on a specific company that you see as like a growth dynamo that's doing really well and hitting all the right buttons, but what are the, what are the, what is enabled by that leap forward that if we fast forward a few years, we're going to find that that part of the world is, wow, so much more advanced than we are and so on and so forth. And kind of like, how does that help us shape that contrast between what we have here and, and what they have there? 
Well, first and foremost, uh, I think the one the biggest locus of of activities that itself has now created its own ecosystem is payments. Um, and as recently as five years ago, a lot of these markets um, had only 20, 15 to 20 percent of its adult population banked in any way, shape or form, meaning with a bank account, what we would traditionally call a bank account. So now the vast majority of you know both employed and unemployed adults um, had never walked into a physical branch, nor had they ever transacted outside of cash or barter. And so, uh, with the arrival, this with, with the um, advent and just sudden uh, propagation of the smartphone. Uh, those two elements kind of um, fed off each other uh, to the point where adoption of e-wallets in a market like Indonesia or the Philippines, um, uh, again, across this adult population, has gone from close to 0%, again, five years ago, uh, to something close to 50%. Uh, and so, you know, the, this is a, tran a transition Moreover, within just a half a decade's time, that as a fellow compatriot, as an American, just never happened in the United States, never will. Uh, and it was even in turn, I think, more dramatic than the market that I spent almost two decades covering prior to that being China. Uh, and so, you know, you're, you, that, that was the first uh, shoe to drop, if you will. And now it's really just this multitude of ancillary services. Now that I have a wallet uh, and I go to the factory, um, I can maybe even get early access to my wages because I've had uh, a new addition to the family or a crisis or whatever. And my HR department will be able to negotiate uh, uh, dispersing my monthly payment uh, a few weeks early. So that we call it out in Asia, EWA, early wage access. Um, I can, you know, uh, Southeast Asia for in ways both good and bad is a real flashpoint for uh, BNPL by now, pay later. Um, I think we're going to see the underbelly of that uh, this year uh, for a number of reasons. Uh, but that has also gone from zero to 60 in a very short period of time. So uh, I could go on and on and on uh, with regard to the, just this incredible um, bouquet of ancillary services, which just continuously blooms. And I would say the other important element of the evolution of fintech in our markets is it relates to the central bank. And by and large, um, the the central bank in most of these jurisdictions has been pretty considered, meaning they haven't been completely asleep at the wheel uh, and allowed the private sector to go wherever it wants, only to have to rein it in quite violently uh, months or years later. And at the same time, they have not been completely, uh, you know, uh, restrictive. Uh, and so that that's also been quite beneficial. Uh, that that um, the OJK or OJK in Indonesia and its counterpart in Vietnam have uh, been led by some pretty enlightened people. So you mix that all up into a bowl, and I think we we have come really far in fintech. Um, you know, definitely over the past decade, 
more dramatically, I think, over the past half, de- half decade or five years. And I think going forward, we're just going to see some fantastic opportunities, which is why I think the single largest category of venture capital in Southeast Asia are fintech specialist funds. There's easily a dozen of them. Uh, and it would seem a bit outsized, but uh, they're there for a very good reason. And um, so I, I, I'm you know, quite positive with regard to the kind of secular prospects of that category. That's awesome. Um, I, so, I mean, just, just understanding, like, you know, it sounds like the two examples you gave about early access or BNPL, um, that sounds uh, at least some culturally similar to what we have here, which is the consumer that, that basically the things that are growing the fastest aren't savings tools, they're spending tools. They're, they're adding some leverage, um, some credit factor. And uh, it's also interesting that you mentioned the central bank in the same breath because, you know, student of history, we all are, you know, we all, we all know that when the United States banking infrastructure really just started developing and, and, and of course, you know, the lending culture began um, that uh, there were really wild swings and volatility in, in uh, um, bankruptcies and such uh, among the banking system, among the financial sector. And that was a pretty uh, wild and volatile uh, period in the early stages of uh, um, until the sector, until the basically US created Secretary of Treasury and such and, and tried to moderate everything. Um, and I'm wondering about uh, this category. So you said that that the, the, we're going to see the underbelly of BNPL uh, this year. Is there some like statistic that you you measure for BNPL relative to I don't know U.S. credit relative to consumers or average average credit per consumer or some kind of is there something that that has happened that makes you say you know BNPL is going to take it on the chin this year and and is that also going to happen do you think for early access or is that one of those things that is probably a little more durable so unfortunately I do not come armed with uh, a lot of analytical or particularly quantitative rigor I will say that BNPL was easily one of the single largest areas of VC investment over the past couple of years. And the most uh, disconcerting element of of its rise has been the sheer number of promotions uh, that these platforms offer to attract customers. And so I remember uh, buying a pair of needlessly expensive high tops for my 14-year-old daughter in Singapore and using one of these solutions because it was giving me a 30% discount uh, on a pair of shoes that cost in the hundreds of dollars. And, um, uh, you know, this kind of addled 20-plus-year-old and uh, equity analyst uh, brain cannot get myself around the, the, the viability of that. I just don't think there's anything um, short, medium, or long-term uh, desirable or, or uh, uh, kind of um, uh, it cannot be explained away why you're subsidizing so heavily. So I think there, there's been that element. And Southeast Asia has seen, whether it's an e-commerce or financial services adoption, just, just as red ocean, a range of, of promotions and subsidies across all behaviors, e-commerce, like I said, and others, as we saw, for instance, in China, which I assume Felix and I know yourself, Ami, 
would uh, wince in, in reflecting back on it earlier in the millennium. Um, and, and so this uh, leads me to my concerns, frankly, across the board, particularly for the developing parts of Southeast Asia, which is, you know, just untold amounts of entrepreneurial capital going into these startups with the tagline usually being, you know, we've got hundreds of millions of potential customers in Indonesia, tens and tens of millions in Vietnam, you know, build the field and they will come. Uh, in other words, no revenues, just the promise or, you know, sometimes the hype around the total addressable market in terms of eyeballs. And now that we are uh, kind of three or four years into the single largest round of venture financing in Southeast Asia, it's a very young industry out here. Um, we're that it's, it, I think 2023 is going to see a, an unprecedented number of failures and a lot of other challenges that Southeast Asia has never encountered. It has not had its you know, Y2K moment that Silicon Valley uh, went through. It has had really none of the uh, slings and arrows that um, the Chinese internet space uh, faced uh, between the year 2000 and, and, and today. And so I, I would love to deliver a, a positive comment on this year and the next couple of years, but I, I think we've got a lot of um, significant and intractable, intractable uh, problems in the private tech markets in Southeast Asia. What um, what is the source? You said the VC industry is very young and it's going to get its comeuppance. Where is the source of capital for the VC industry? Is that locally sourced, or is it wealth funds, sovereign wealth funds, or is it is it you know large U.S. private equity companies or or institutions? Or yeah, that's a great question, and I think there's a very interesting answer. I mean, by and large. Uh, Southeast Asia VC is no more than 15 years old, and much of it dates back to the very forward-looking actions of Tomasic, which you probably all know is a um, sovereign wealth fund of Singapore. And back then, probably now again, 14 or 15 years ago, they decided they would seed entrepreneur pools of entrepreneurial capital as part of the city-state's attempt to you know, build its relevance in, in um, uh, uh, private uh, capital markets. And so I think it was um, four or five or six funds that it, it helped seed. And I think the checks were no more than 10 or $20 million in each case. And uh, I mean, I, I do view uh, Tomasic as truly one of the most forward thinking uh, financial entities on the planet. Um, and with that, it comes the willingness to take risk. Uh, but, you know, having set up these funds um, and bringing on largely fresh blood, I mean, we weren't uh, drawing from battle-hardened uh, GPs from Sand Hill Road or even to the north from China. Um, you know, we uh, exhibit a lot of the signs of a very young uh, private tech investment world. Um, you know, a lot of those initial GPs, it was their first or second job, which I don't think is being done in almost any market. Um, and so there was a lot of kind of painful learning. I think there will be very significant learning this year on that topic. Um, 
And, you know, so that's uh, that might be the investor perspective. Um, people are maturing as we speak um, in their uh, under the, de- uh, you know, uh, under their desks uh, at these VC firms in Southeast Asia. The entrepreneur is also, at least uh, on the tech side, uh, is also very young uh, and follows the same evolution that I saw uh, way back when I graduated MBA and immediately started looking at China and the startups there. And that is that the first wave is, as as, as Felix would know, we're all highway or uh, sea turtles, meaning um, local uh, kids who went overseas for advanced degrees and were now coming back. Uh, they were either the scion of uh, big families that had made their fortunes in what you might call traditional offline industries and had caught the bug, whether it was at Carnegie Mellon or Caltech or MIT, and wanted to do something in the technology field, or kids who didn't come from that kind of family business background, uh, but had some incredible insights that they may have gained while studying in the UK, Australia, US, or elsewhere. Um, and again, that only happened roughly at about the same time. And 15 years may sound like a very, very long time in the tech space. Ultimately, when it comes to the maturation of, uh, you know, management discipline and the, you know, the, the creation of more lateral thinking patterns in a part of the world, and I may be sounding on PC, a part of the world in which a lot of instruction uh, has been generally wrote in repetition and the highest grades were the ones who could uh, would go to the students who had memorized things the best. Um, and so that is very much in the, you know, so what we're actually talking about uh, it, with regard to the prospects of uh, the technology space and the venture capitalists that, that support it and feed it is these massive um, uh, table stakes, which are educational system, you know, regulatory um, insight and support. And all of these things are similarly very, very young. Uh, and so, you know, this is what gives me pause and, and really makes me wonder whether we're going to have quite a bunch of existential issues arise in 2023 not for any kind of conscious um, uh, 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 malfaisance or anything like that, but just really as a function of how incredibly young we are and the fact that we've never been through one of these cleansing or purgative downturns. Amazing. Um, I have I have a few follow-ups, but I know Felix and Andrew have questions. I think Felix um, is going to go go first between them, but um, definitely really interesting uh, stuff. And And I'll just add one point is, you know what, Alan, it makes me, it reminds me that when I looked, um, the last time I looked at some of the heads of, of current VCs, the biggest, you know, famous ones, uh, some of those people were the, you know, first job or second job people from the mid 90s, who then, you know, kind of like learned the lesson under their desks in 2001 and two, um, but didn't lose their job somehow and ended up rising, taking all the lessons and rising up to be the top of those firms. So pretty interesting how that all is going to shake out and shape up uh, for that industry. Uh, I do, like I said, I do have a couple more follow-ups, but I'm going to pass it over to Felix for now and, um, and let him ask away. I'll get back in the queue. 
Hey, Alan, I uh, really appreciate you joining our podcast and really nice to meet you. Um, really imp- uh, appreciate your insights. Um, I'm definitely learning. Um, you know, I, I guess I have a few questions for you. Uh, um, some on e-commerce, some on your venture capital. Uh, so, you know, Southeast Asia is certainly an interesting landscape and, and recently growth has skyrocketed there. Um, and as you mentioned, you know, e-commerce penetration has gained, but but I'm wondering, you know, how much was that was due because of COVID-19? Um, based on what I've researched, you know, e-commerce penetration in, in some of those countries in Southeast Asia are already above 20%. And that's traditionally a ceiling point for many developed countries around the world. So um, I guess, you know, a follow-up to that question is how relevant are offline channels uh, in in Southeast Asia today? Because um, I know at least in China, it's still very relevant. And I guess that's my first question. Yeah, so uh, COVID absolutely lopped on four or five percentage points gratuitously to the trajectory we had in mind back in 2019 for you know, 2020, 2021. Uh, but that really meant Indonesia going from two and a half percent, or maybe, sorry, if we're talking about a base year, of, let's say 2020, going from uh, 5% to 11%, which obviously is, is phenomenal growth. Uh, and so the big question that we were all, you know, waiting, waiting to be answered uh, with bated breath was, are we going to backpedal once the lockdowns are loosened, et cetera? Um, and uh, most of us were able to uh, heave a sigh of relief because th- there has been no negative growth. And, and I guess very few were really worried about that per se, but at least a market slowdown. But uh, I don't know, uh, again, where Indonesia is specifically on penetration. Um, I would say it's still sub 15%. I'd be very surprised if any markets outside of maybe Singapore are above 20%. Um, you know, that said, um, we're in a period of time, again, given how um, nascent so many of these tech trends are in Southeast Asia, that numbers, reliable numbers are very difficult to come by. Um, many of them are created by companies that, uh, you know, pay to have them calculated. Um, we've seen that before. Uh, but the most robust ones, which have historically come from a collaboration of Tomasic, Google, and Bain, it's an annual report that comes out roughly every September, would put probably the overall region still in the high um, single digits uh, overall e-commerce penetration. So, and I think those numbers are, I, I have come to regard them as the most reliable because I, I used to contribute to the project and I've been able to look under the hood. Um, and so I'm not too worried about us having gotten to China levels, which I think are now between 30 to 40 percent. And moreover, uh, I don't think uh, it, I believe in, and I'm rarely in my old age known for making overly optimistic uh, predictions. I, I learned the hard way by getting way out over my skis as a young tech analyst, thinking that everything would be adopted immediately. Um, so I'm, I'm really the optimist here, but I actually think structurally we could easily at least asymptotically approach China levels um, over many years time. 
Um, and the main reason, and this also brings into, you know, our circumstances in the United States, the main reason is there is almost no offline retail infrastructure across Indonesia's 17,500 islands. It wouldn't surprise you if I were to say the most sophisticated retail is the warong or the roadside stand. And so if you're coming from absolutely nothing and your people are getting wealthier and wealthier and want to express that wealth and consumption, um, you're not suddenly going to start building malls, particularly on, in, in markets uh, short of maybe the top 10 urban centers in Indonesia. And far and away, the most efficient way to start serving that budding consumer is to link e-commerce with the ever-growing investment in logistics in markets such as the Philippines and Indonesia and elsewhere, uh, and therefore delivering the retail experience purely online and um, these days really purely on mobile, right? So if we pull back to the early 2000s, which is even China, which was growing extremely quickly in e-commerce, it was still being done on a desktop. And I could, I have to admit, I could not envision people achieving the same level of satisfaction with an e-commerce transaction on a smartphone. And I was so wrong. Um, and Ami will be able now to reflect on all the bad calls I made as a research analyst. That was one of the biggest ones. Um, and now, you know, I don't, I would suspect low single digit uh, number of transactions percentage wise uh, are being done on a desktop. So you have got things uh, preconditions in most of developing Southeast Asia, which just don't apply definitely to the United States. I mean, I started buying uh, clothing and sadly it still shows at J. Crew 30 years ago, still go offline to buy from there. My counterpart, even in Jakarta, probably never did it and never will. And so that is e-commerce where in the United States that, that will probably never be e-commerce. It'll take a long time to disabuse our you know, offline behaviors. And um, in the same way, I got my first computer in the uh, late 80s. Um, most of the people I talked to in uh, Indonesia, the Philippines, the only computer they have, if they have it, is work related, and their personal devices are all mobiles and tablets. So it's apples and oranges. Um, and so going back to your, uh, you know, the last part of your question, Felix, um, I think we should be tracking uh, to China's precedent, and maybe we need to add 10 or 12 years to that. Uh, but I don't think it's unrealistic to think that we can actually, um, like I said, approximate China levels uh, relatively soon because of these preconditions. Hmm, interesting. Um I guess I was wondering also, Alan, you know, how are the local government in Indonesia reacting to sort of new disruptors into their market? Particularly, I'm thinking about, you know, how do they support foreign companies, for example, C Limited and Shopee uh, versus local companies like Goda? Um, and I, I guess I'm asking this question particularly because of TikTok. And, and TikTok shop um, and the waves that they're making, particularly in Indonesia and live streaming e-commerce. So I wonder if you have a viewpoint there in terms of how the government is looking at, you know, various different platforms entering their, their country. 
Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, and when I get asked that question, I, I once again reflect on the 20 years that I had the privilege of supporting all of these IPOs out of the China market. And therefore, it begs a comparison to Chinese policy to foreign players, which I would generously say has been quite restrictive. We don't have much of that, if any of that, in Southeast Asia. Uh, and uh, I, I, you know, I think it's generally been to the significant benefit of most of these markets from how it has um, contributed to economic growth and opened up employment opportunities and exposed uh, their peoples to generally good influences. I, I would say as the, again, the, 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 the parent of a teenager, TikTok accepted. I'm not enthusiastic about that one. But um, so, yeah, they have not um, either had the organization or the will or the interest to get you know, particularly xenophobic. So, and, and um, you know, in markets, I know I constantly default to Indonesia, as Ami mentioned in his prefatory comments, that has been the bulk of my work, uh, both running strategy at Sea Limited and then in my VC capacity. Um, the, uh, the, the it's, a, it's increasingly looking like a technocracy there. And I say that in only positive ways. Uh, you mentioned Goto, um, the founder of Gojek, Nadim Makarim, uh, is the Minister of uh, Culture, Education, and Technology. They, they have gradually grown his um, remit. Uh, so he and he went to, I think, Brown University undergrad in Rhode Island and then um, studied business at Harvard. Uh, and so um, people like himself generally, uh, I would be supportive of this idea, want only the best. And if that comes from outside, that's fine. Um, you know, but I, there are occasionally periods of time where we um, uh, grow concerned about a shift in policy. And one of the more recent triggers was when Beijing cracked down on all the ed tech platforms. Um, and we saw the publicly listed guys uh, lose massive amounts of value. Um, and, um, you know, we all thought, oh, my gosh, is, again, this very nascent ed tech space across Southeast Asia going to see the same kind of uh, changes in, in, in the regulators' views, and it didn't happen. And one of the reasons that we haven't seen really any protectionism, if you will, is um, none of, I guess Vietnam would be capable of doing that, but the governments don't really have the ubiquitous leverage in policy uh, across, you know, their, what is sometimes looks like a loose confederation of smaller countries, whether you look at, again, Indonesia or Malaysia, which is, they're both super diverse, ethnically, politically, religiously, etc. Um, they just don't have that kind of homogeneity to say, we are officially going in this direction. And as it relates to your question, we are officially going to find uh, a search alternative to Google and a social alternative to Facebook and Instagram. And that that uh, will and wherewithal just doesn't exist. Um, and nor, I would argue, nor will it exist. And, and if they do anything, I mean, TikTok is, again, a bit of an outlier here in the States. I gather the college campuses are, are turning off server access, et cetera. Um, you know, that, that just, um, that, that is more, I think, uh, just as much parents worrying about their children as it is um, the incumbents in e-commerce worrying about what it's going to do to them. 
because as you, as you reference, um, there are the native sons, which are Gojek and Tokopedia, and I guess Bukalapak is number three, um, built by born and bred uh, Indonesians and considered native sons and daughters. There is then what you might call the exchange student, which is C Limited, which was founded by, um, you know, uh, to a person, a leadership team that originally came from China and settled into Singapore, but localized very nicely into Indonesia. Uh, and so very few people know that Shopee is not an Indonesian company, if you ask them on the streets of Indonesia. And then you have the foreign players. But across those three categories, no one's really finding any challenges. There aren't really any, uh, you know, uh, backroom discussions that happen between the regulator and the local players that only the foreign players find out six or nine months later, which I found to be the case in China and ended up being a tremendous disadvantage to players back then like eBay and Amazon, et cetera. And so I think that it ends up still being kind of this uh, melting pot of what used to be almost exclusively foreign players and platforms coming into markets like Vietnam and Indonesia. But actually the needle is shifting ever increasingly toward local entrepreneurs, toward uniquely local business models, which I find the most intellectually fascinating. We're getting, for instance, um, new variants of what uh, we called in China social commerce with you know, guys like Pinduoduo, Xiao Hongshu, and others. Uh, um, they're being in turn, again, localized to the unique uh, dimensions of Indonesia, the Philippines, Malaysia, Vietnam. Uh, and so the government may not need to have to take steps in the future if indeed as my thesis goes, we go from this very kind of nascent state that we've been talking about time and again on this podcast to a greater state of maturity, you know, more mature um, uh, business models by more mature entrepreneurs uh, that are Indonesian passport holders or Vietnamese citizens. Um, and so I don't see regulatory concern on the horizon from that perspective. Great, that's uh, that's that's very helpful, Alan. I'm you know I'm I'm just curious, you know, given your VC background, um, you know, we we've been having a, a a funding winter, so to speak, and I'm I'm curious if you're seeing that thaw a little bit as we as we're one month in into the new year of 2023, um, you know, in particular, how are the VCs? Uh, thinking about looking for the next opportunity, the next, sorry about the background, the next opportunity, the next unicorn in Southeast Asia, has the recent downturn um, prompted, prompted them to really rethink about their strategy going forward? Well, so one thing I would argue, we have not really seen a winter, uh, at least from the perspective of fundraising from LPs. I mean, I see it firsthand, second and third hand, if you will, uh, funds are still being raised. Uh, you know, it's probably more difficult if you're a first time fund manager, but very large uh, follow on funds and growth funds are being announced. Um, and I don't know how that comps with other markets, but again, I've been very surprised to the upside, uh, the, the ease the relative ease with which well, uh, we ourselves and our peers have been able to bring on uh, new LPs and get others to double down on subsequent funds, et cetera. 
And so I haven't really seen a, a winter set in on the funding side. Uh, what I am most concerned about is, again, the quality of the investments. And uh, we, for instance, had, you know, let a thousand blue, uh, flowers bloom type growth in uh, uh, startups that were committed to helping the mom and pop and the Indonesian SME with their bookkeeping with their access to working capital, you know, with their ability to, like I said, offer EWA to their employees, da 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 da, da. And it was okay when things were uh, growthy and, 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 um, and capital was patient for the actual P&L to be built. It's not okay now. And, you know, although there are some great entrepreneurs and there are some very robust business models uh, emerging, and there are some that are, you know, growing revenues. It is a tiny minority of the startups that I gain exposure to, and not just in my capacity as a venture partner at this fund, but um, I've built something with colleagues at Tomasic called Jenny, which um, is is committed to, you know, cultivating young entrepreneurs. So, what is missing? in this kind of uh, trajectory towards successful uh, listing of tech companies or trade sales is the actual business model is not delivering. And um, so much of the business model, the business model in Southeast Asia, developing Southeast Asia uh, 10 years ago, uh, or even five years ago, was almost 100% B2C. What can we do for the consumer? Can we push uh, movies to them? Can we pick them up and drop them off somewhere else in the city? Uh, can, again, we extend them loans that um, they could never get from their local bank? Um, and who wouldn't want any of those services? Um, and so the adoption was amazing. Does anyone want to pay or have the ability to pay for these services? That's where the disappointment has begun to grow. And on the SME side, as I mentioned earlier, the proprietor uh, who ekes out a tiny margin every month um, is still not comfortable paying a subscription fee per month just because uh, he can now access new SKUs on an app on his phone that he can't store in his little um, kiosk roadside. And so, um, and there are other obviating circumstances in all of developing Southeast Asia, which is headcount costs are super cheap. So the whole, you know, a dream of SaaS or software as a service, which is displacing expensive headcount does not apply. And so my long-winded point here is we're just not delivering the top and definitely no bottom line that at this point in time, if VC is 15 years old, even if it's as young as 15 year, years old, this cohort of startups needs to show a PL and and we're not seeing it. And so yeah, that's as a result, I, I kind of I fear a bit of a train crash as this billions of dollars that continues to get raised is not finding quality investments. Awesome. I'm uh, I'm happy to hear that uh, the VC funding hasn't really been impacted by the by the downturn. Um, it, I know we're running short on time, but if I may, can, can I ask one more question? Um, you know, I I agree with, with you wholeheartedly on the uh, the tremendous unbanked and underbanked opportunity in Southeast Southeast Asia. Um, Alan, where do you see the landscape for fintech 
um, changing in the next five years or so? Is there, uh, I'm just curious to hear about, you know, the, the, the opportunity there, particularly with digital payments um, and, uh, and other areas that you may want to touch on. Thank you. Well, this comes all the way back to uh, some earlier remarks from Ami. Um, wealth management is, I think, an absolutely fascinating category. Again, as recently as a few years ago, retail participation in most of the stock markets outside of Singapore uh, was very low double digit. In Indonesia, it was probably sub 5%. And... Um, you know, uh, you by having initially onboarded uh, from one of the payment solutions, whether it's GoPay or ShopeePay or other e-wallet tools, to then saying, what do I do with my balance here? Um, and being allowed to do local um, stock investment, to being introduced to other asset categories. I mean, the Indonesians have an affinity for gold, and so there are some really cool wealth management platforms that uh, make access to that um, class uh, relatively straightforward uh, to, you know, the on again, off again, uh, crypto opportunity. Uh, that is uh, one category in fintech, which I think is just going to throw off so many cool uh, business plans, uh, some of which will fail if only because there's huge amounts of competition um, in a lot of these categories. Uh, but net net, as as retail participation starts going into the teens and onward, um, that is not a small number uh, when you think about collective assets under management. Uh, and I think we can look at the China precedent and the uh, origins of Alipay, followed by WeChat Pay, and then just the huge hydroponic farm of. Uh, complementary uh, financial services that each of those groups um, created in the insurance space and et cetera, et cetera. Uh, all of that's going to happen in Indonesia. But I think the coolest area where some of the most interesting entrepreneurs are focused is wealth management. Gotcha. That's, uh, that's, that's really helpful. Let me just turn it back to Ami. Okay. Yeah, uh, Alan, um... Uh, amazing. I guess maybe if I ask, I've got like nine more questions, but I know we don't have time for it. Um, I do want to ask one, which is that, you know, here at Hedgeye, we're both like long and short. Our recommendations are, are on equities are either short or long. And when we think about everything that you're talking about, obviously you've given us a, some macro kind of short idea in terms of a train running into a wall type of thing. Um, but when you think about the five-year, 10-year growth of the categories you're witnessing, uh, the speed with which they're evolving, the venture capital, the financing, the localized business models, the wealth of services that you've, you've just touched on a second ago that have potential, whether it's crypto or wealth management, et cetera. Um, and you think about as that rises, uh, what is getting, what is disrupted? Is there something that's getting disrupted that you think uh, is sort of like the short type of thing, meaning like the thing that's in the way, or or perhaps it's a it's a it's an international competitor who just literally who plans to flourish here and who literally is not going to. So, just to question that side of things as well, like what is the who's at risk here as this part of the? I know it's not a zero sum game exactly because this is kind of like nascent greenfield growth, but like when you think about 
the ten, five and 10 year view, you, you sort of think about what is the losing category in this area? Well, I'm not going to surprise any of you by saying, you know, the other side of that coin with the um, rapid growth of fintech is a lot of the offline banks and and um, financial services providers. Uh, some of them have had the prescience to uh, form their own CVC or corporate venture capital arms a few, five, six years ago. Um, and even those things have seen kind of mixed results. Um, but And it's not as if these guys are going to go to zero, but what they're missing is every single long tail new banking customer uh, that they just are not at all architected to ever serve. Um, and so it's basically um, you, what you would have expected to be the rightful growth trajectory of a traditional bank. Uh, at this stage of economic development, it gets kind of chopped off. And so maybe you have a, a little bit of a plateau there. Um, the, the, uh, and also, you know, retail, it's just not going to be the brick and mortar players that we are used to, even in China. I mean, the urban centers have incredibly, um, you know, well-appointed, uh, uh, you know, retail um, uh, infrastructure. Uh, and so, you know, that will not happen. Um, but other, 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 otherwise, it's just things that never even took root. It was just too early. Um, you know, uh, uh, yes, uh, all these mar markets have their own traditional sports and soccer is probably first and foremost. Um, but, you know, uh, esports is just massively popular in almost every market. Uh, and so... You know, a lot of recreation will be online, whereas in, again, more aged markets like Europe and the U.S., uh, they're probably here, here to stay. Um, but, you know, in most cases, it's just stuff that never had a chance to uh, hit the, get, you know, break through the topsoil and start growing. And so we're not talking about large sectors of the economy collapsing. Um, and so it's, yeah, it's just really who gets that incremental growth and it's, it, it ends up falling onto those that are, uh, nimble and tech enabled. Um, yeah. So uh, yeah, really no, no, no massive tectonic changes that we have to fear. No, I said the last one was the last one, but this is really the last one, which is, do you see any of the local companies, the domestic winners, do you see any of them preparing for a more international future and like kind of spreading their wings outside of that region and kind of starting to maybe take a step into Australia or Japan or other areas that they can flex their kind of leading capacities and, uh, and strengths? Yeah, uh, I really, that's a longer term story in my mind. Um, the, because the local markets are adequately proportioned and particularly again Indonesia but even Vietnam and the Philippines to grow the proverbial unicorn um, there are guys particularly in the fintech space who have finally found product market fit and p2p lending and uh, find that the regulatory regimes are not too disparate that they can port them into other markets uh, but the growth, the international growth, if you will, or cross-border growth, 
will remain very, very regional. I don't see almost any of the, even the most promising businesses um, going outside of Southeast Asia. And even the local heroes in Indonesia have really found it um, a, a, a tough haul. Uh, in the case of Gojek before Goto, um, they moved out of Indonesia into Singapore, Vietnam, and maybe Thailand. Uh, they've been through a number of leadership changes in Vietnam, uh, Singapore. It's just been about who 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 subsidizes more against the Uber of our region called uh, Grab. Uh, and so, you know, uh, everyone was talking about being a multi-market player and following C's lead, uh, which, as you guys know, a few years back ended up jumping the tracks and uh, expanding out of Southeast Asia to markets like Brazil and maybe Mexico and Eastern Europe and parts of Southern Europe, only to retrench uh, shortly thereafter for reasons I'm sure you guys have discussed many times on this show. Uh, but yeah, I wouldn't be holding my breath for any of these um, local favorites uh, showing up in uh, any of your zip codes in the same way that if we date China's um, internet to the kind of late 90s, uh, really wasn't until TikTok came along that we had a Chinese player that succeeded famously in other markets. Um, and then we don't have that very clear duality, which is you either succeed incredibly well in China and you don't do so well rest of world, or you are really successful in rest of world and you go nowhere in China. It, that it's, it, The borders are not, uh, the walls are not as high and thick. Um, and as a result, you know, the inbound, you know, Google and Facebook are at least as um, ubiquitous in the Philippines as they are in, in France. Um, but the outbound Again, going back to the very first topic we discussed, the entrepreneurs are, you know, they may have been globally trained, um, but they just either don't have it on their business plans, particularly in the recent retrenchment, or they just don't have the appetite uh, to uh, take it any further than a contiguous market that, that they literally and figuratively just cross the border into. Alan, uh, this has been very strong learning for all of us. You have uh, transported us to a region of the world that we don't often uh, focus on. Uh, there seems to be enormous opportunity there. In some respect, I guess I wouldn't be surprised to see a Tiger Global or a CO2 or one of the more aggressive US uh, venture capital funds either just go buy one of the more successful or more proliferated local uh, Indonesia funds and uh, and gain a foothold that way. But it sounds like an important part of the world to be watching and exciting in terms of how new and nascent and fast moving and opportunistic um, in terms of uh, not just uh, the population sizes, but also in terms of the fact that like you said the walls are are not so thick and not so high and the entry uh, and exit opportunities are large. Um, well, I, I, I really appreciate your time today. We all do. And uh, to our listeners also, thank you for listening. This is, uh, Alan, honestly, I, th I think we probably could have three more sessions just on the same topics uh, before we even just start to get to the end of the, the pad of, of questions that I'm left with. I know poor Andrew didn't even get a chance to ask, ask any today. But we do appreciate your time and, and effort. And uh, thank you again. And thanks to all of our listeners for listening in. 
This has been uh, Unscripted Season 3, Episode 3. Thanks. Don't forget to check out Hedgeye.com to get more actionable investing insights from our team of more than 40 research analysts. And check us out on Twitter at our handle, at Hedgeye. This presentation is informational only. None of the information contained herein constitutes an offer to sell or a solicitation of an offer to buy any security or investment vehicle, nor does it constitute investment recommendation or legal, tax, accounting, or investment advice by Hedgeye or any of its employees, officers, agents, or guests. This information is presented without regard for individual investment preferences or risk parameters and is general, non-tailored, non-specific information. This content is based on information from sources believed to be reliable. Is not responsible for errors, inaccuracies, or omissions of information. The opinions and conclusions contained in this report are those of the individual expressing those opinions and conclusions and are intended solely for the use of Hedgeye subscribers and the authorized recipients of the content. All investments entail a certain degree of risk, and financial instrument prices can fluctuate based on several factors, including those not considered in the preparation of the content. Consult your financial professional before investing. The information contained herein is protected by United States and foreign copyright laws and is intended solely for the use of its authorized recipient. Access must be provided directly by Hedgeye. Redistribution or republication is strictly prohibited. For more detail, please refer to the terms of service at hedgeye.com slash terms of service.